Ananim. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Cobb's Corner. If this is your first time listening, welcome and to my returning listeners, welcome back. On this episode of Cobb's Corner, we will be reviewing the 1942 classic Casablanca. We're going to be con- continuing our our uh, top our our AF- AFI's top 100 uh, movies series, you know, top 100 greatest movies of all time, uh, 100, 100 greatest American films of all time, and number three on our list is Casablanca. Uh, we will be reviewing Godfather, and The Godfather is ranked as number two. We will be reviewing The Godfather at a later time, after I've read the book. So Casablanca, uh, 1942. Uh, quick introduction. A cynical expatriate American cafe owner struggles to decide whether or not to help his former lover and her fugitive husband escape the Nazis in French Morocco. Storyline. The story of Rick Blaine, a cynical, world-weary expatriate who runs a nightclub in Casablanca, Morocco during the early stages of World War II. Despite the pressure he constantly receives from the local authorities, Rick's Cafe has been a kind of haven for refugees seeking to obtain illicit letters that will help them escape to America. But when Ilsa, a former lover of Rick's, and her husband show up to his cafe one day, Rick faces a tough challenge which will bring up unforeseen complications, heartbreak, and ultimately an excruciating decision to make. This storyline is provided to us by Kyle Perez via IMDb. The movie is directed by Michael Curtis, written by Julius J. Epstein, Philip G. Epstein, and Howard Koch, Koch, and it stars Hubert Humphrey, Ingrid Bergman, and Paul Henreid. Let's go to Cops Corner. So before I just dive uh, headfirst into into my favorite parts of this movie, um, just a bit of like historical context. This movie came out in the year 1942, and it takes place in the year 1941 um, after the start of World War II. So let's just you know take a step back, you know, and understand the world in which this movie Casablanca was released in, okay? Um, released in 1942, took place 1941 before Pearl Harbor when America was a isolationist uh, country. We were sort of uh, neutral. Technically, we were still neutral um, in World War II. You know, the whole, you know, Hitler had invaded Poland in 1939 and, uh, you know, the war was going on. You know, there was the Marco Polo Bridge incident, I think, in 1937 when Japan invaded China. Imperial Japan had invaded China, and the war was going on in Europe. But America, we were technically, we were still isolated. We were not 
directly involved in uh, World War II at this point. So, yeah, just 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 a bit of a uh, bit of con bit of context to to uh, the movie before we just dive in a bit of historical context. Um, the movie begins with, well, unlike uh, Citizen Kane, which was our last episode, um, I, I mentioned how Citizen Kane, in, in the trivia, we talked about how it wasn't the norm at the time to just flash the movie title and then for the movie to just start right away without any opening credits. This movie puts all of its credits at the beginning of the movie and no credits at the end. So, so the movie starts off with the title, Casablanca, along with the opening credits, you know, who's starring and the producers, directors, etc. And then we get a bit of a documentary style, um, sort of like newsreel about how, about how France has been occupied by the Nazis and there's a network of refugees seeking safe passage to the Americas, to the United States, to, you know, Canada, to, you know, seeking safe passage to the Americas. Uh, which were not, which again, America, we were not directly involved yet. We were a neutral country. You know, the seeking safe passage um, from Paris to eventually end up in um, Marseille and then to Casablanca, Morocco. Now, Morocco was uh, occupied by the French at that time. And. Our story officially begins at Rick's Cafe. Uh, Rick's Cafe, uh, Rick, who's played by Hubert, uh, Humphrey Bogart, I almost said Hubert Humphrey. Um, <laughs> no, Humphrey Bogart, yes, played uh, Rick Blaine, played by uh, Humphrey Bogart. Rick Blaine, he's, as I said, as I said in the storyline, he's a cynical, world-weary expatriate. He runs a nightclub in Casablanca, which is sort of a haven that people are able to get transfer papers to go to Lisbon to, I guess, to get on a plane to Lisbon and then from Lisbon they, they take a, you know, clipper boat uh, to, the, to the States. And at this point, the Nazis have occupied France, so there's a German presence in Morocco, but we see how it's really, this nightclub is kind of a haven for sort of both sides, I guess, of like the world conflict. Like we're, the world was really at a tipping point. Because as I said before, like America was not a part of the war yet. We were cautiously isolationist. Um, you know, the war could have gone either way at that point. And so we see how Rick's Cafe is, you know, a haven for people getting transfer papers to Lisbon and to the Americas and and then all of a sudden one day uh, Ilsa who is a former lover of Rick's uh, Ilsa played by Ingrid Bergman uh, she walks into Rick's cafe one day and and she find she she finds Rick and she asks Rick to and she, she tries to like rekindle whatever uh, romance they might they might have had, and we even cut to pre uh, pre occupation of France. How Rick Rick and 
Rick and Ilsa had met in France. Uh, unbeknownst to unbeknownst to Rick, he um, unbeknownst to Rick, Isla was married to. Gosh, what was his name? Um, she was married to Victor Laszlo. Victor Laszlo, who was a French freedom fighter who had who had gone who had been sent to a to a, to a Nazi concentration camp and he had been there for a year so Isla's having this secret romance upon upon realization that well the news had come out that Victor Laszlo had been murdered um, that he had been murdered in the concentration camp and and so then Isla and Rick are off in Paris and they're just kind of living their life and falling in love unbeknownst again unbeknownst to Rick that Isla was still technically married to um, Mr. to Mr. Laszlo and and then there and then their their um, their love is pretty much or their peaceful time in in France, you know, in, in Paris, in you know the city of love, is cut short by the Nazis invading by the Nazi the Nazi invasion of uh, France. You know, so so their so their own like personal love is pretty much ended by like the crazy world that they were living. You know, due to outside uh, factors, and ultimately. And ultimately, Sam, uh, not Sam, Rick <laughs> de de devises this whole plan to, for, for the two of them to leave Paris and to make their way to Casablanca or you know, to, make, to make their way to Casablanca as refugees to pretty much make their way out of, out of uh, Nazi-occupied France. And then the plan is for Rick to, the plan is for Rick to pick, to pick Isla up at her hotel, quarter to five, and then get on the five o'clock train out of Paris. But then Isla ends up essentially leaving Rick behind. And as we see Rick, along with his piano player Sam, played by Dooley Wilson, we see the two of them at the train station, and Sam hands, hands Rick a letter and it's a letter from Isla telling him to essentially move on and forget about her and you know her pretty much saying it's not going to work out between us you know you need to go and move on and live your life i'm holding you back sort of thing so so Rick and Sam they make their way over to they make their way out of Paris and they make their way over to Casablanca and again, they they open up this they they open up this nightclub, you know, Ricks, and now we're sort of you know caught all 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 caught up with the uh, with where the story is at at this time. And two German officials have been murdered by a Mr. Ugarte, and uh, Mr. Ugarte, who is who is, I guess. One of one of the other uh, French freedom fighters who ends up getting arrested and then killed by German officials at Rick's bar, and 
and we see how the movie like there's a lot of like melodrama there's a lot of like seemingly minor uh stuff that goes on in this in this bar and again it's a haven for folks just trying to get out of just trying to get out of Casablanca and make their way to the states and then one night at the bar we see Rick we see we see Rick as he says now I'm sure you see this is why this movie is so iconic and so timeless and such a great film because you've heard quotes all right and I know this because when I first watched this movie all right I had already heard quotes from this movie again I, I, I didn't understand the full context because I hadn't actually watched the full movie but I've heard quotes from this movie it's been used that have been used in other TV shows and other movies and you know just references to Casablanca so he says the iconic line as he's sitting in the sitting at the bar of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world she walks into mine so Rick's way of saying that he's kind of shocked that she you know just walks into his bar and how Rick has gone from pretty much being an idealist during his little romance with Isla pre you know pre Nazi occupation of France you know when everything was peaceful and then the world pretty much tore them apart due to reasons beyond their control they were torn apart so he's gone from idealist to more of a cynic who just wants to stay out of the conflict who wants to remain neutral who wants to just who wants to just run his who wants to just kind of run his nightclub and not get into politics like he's even had like there's even a scene where he has to break up i think it's a an argument between like a french official and a german and you know he says you know you need to take your politics out of here you know we don't ever you know we don't get involved in you know the politics or whatever's going on in the world this is my nightclub and yes there's some gambling and you know this is a peaceful establishment we are not involved in you know whatever 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 everything else that's going on in the world which reflects the state which which again reflects america's stance at this point in time in the global conflict. Uh, Rick is introduced to Victor Laszlo because now it's it's confirmed that Victor Laszlo is still alive and Isla, she admits to Rick that she was still married to Mr. Laszlo the whole time that the two of them were together in Paris. And now Mr. Laszlo, now Isla knows that Mr. Laszlo is still alive, and she begs Rick to grant them safe passage to America, you know, grant them safe passage out of Casablanca so they can, you know, so Victor Laszlo, who again, French freedom fighter, can go and rejoin the fight and can go and rejoin the fight. They urge Rick to come out of pretty much his state of of cynicism and of neutrality and to you know, join the fight. And then, you know, Rick says no. And there's a, there's a, there's a really great scene where, you know, the, you know, Isla and Rick, they're in, I guess, Rick's, uh, his house or his, his uh, bedroom. And then Isla says, you know, like, you were our last hope. And, you know, there, there is no hope for Victor and I to make it out of here alive. You know, you, you, were, you were our last hope. Uh, so 
One of Rick's associates is Captain uh, Louis Renault, played by uh, Claude Rains. Uh, Captain Renault is an opportunist who really, you know, who who really only like looks out for himself and not for and not for others. And just again, he's an op- he's an opportunist who just kind of goes with the winning team regardless. And he and he's and he's um, ult- he's ultimately the the one who helps get Isla and Victor out of out of uh, Cas- Casablanca. Uh, there's probably like my favorite scene in the bar is where there's German officials and <laughs> you know shout out to my listeners in Germany and my listeners in France any of my listeners in Morocco. I, you know, any of my listeners in Morocco and North Africa, you know, shout out to all of you. Um, salute. <laughs> Granted, my, you know, German and my, well, my, my French is not as good as it once was. I did take a little bit of, I did take French in high school, middle school and high school. Um, I've never taken a German class. There's some song that the German officials in the bar, they start singing some German song and then the band and and then and then like Victor Lazo he tells the band to play whatever the like the French liberty song that he tells them to play and then Rick even Rick even approves it so we start to see Rick slowly come out of his state of cynical neutrality and just wanting to stay out of everything and the band starts playing and then they and then they start they, and then like all the French people in the bar, they join in, they start singing loudly and with passion, and then <laughs> they, they start singing loudly and with passion, and then the Germans, they, they try singing their song, and it's like sort of like a singing match, and then that, that eventually, that the French ultimately win, Isla joins in, and she says, you know, vive la France, uh, vive liberté, uh, vive le démocratique, or, uh, I know Vive la France means uh, long live France and uh, Vive la Liberty, uh, long live, is long live liberty, I think. Um, so again, French speaking listeners, um, feel free to translate for us uh, English speakers in the comments below. Um, <laughs> yes, Vive la France, Vive Liberty, and, and ultimately this gets Rick's club shut down. You know, we, we see how you see both sides of the conflict in like neutral territory and then they end up having to shut down Rick's nightclub. Uh, Rick, along with Captain Renault, are able to get transfer papers, get two transfer papers for Victor and Isla to get them to get them out, out of out of Casablanca and onto the United States. And we even see we even see there there was there was a younger couple. We even see that there there was a younger couple that Rick was able to help get transfer papers after Rick told told the husband to bet on number twenty two, bet on black twenty two and then he wins this huge fortune and Rick is able to kind of slide him the transfer papers and gets him and his wife him and his wife out of uh, Casablanca and on the next plane to Lisbon it's the same couple it's like a minor couple that we saw in like the opening of the movie 
they said like we could be on that plane tomorrow so yeah the movie ends with uh, again another quotable scene that I've heard you know <laughs> that I've seen parodies of that you've heard you've heard these lines you've heard these lines or you've maybe seen this exact scene one point or another uh, Isla wants Rick to join uh, her and Victor as they as they escape to uh, Lisbon although you know, although Rick finally realizes that he has to set aside whatever romance he might have had with Isla and Victor. He, he's, he says how, like, something like our, you know, love in this world, like, in, in this crazy world, you know, our love amounts to not even a anthill or a roll or a hill of beans or something like that. Um, that quote might come up later on in the episode during the quotes uh, portion. Essentially saying that the lives of like him and her, you know, two people, lives of two people cannot stand in the way of how many millions of lives are at stake with, you know, this global conflict that's going on. Basically saying like there's more important things than true love, that true love is going to have to lose to this growing, to this, to this larger conflict. You've got a role to play, your husband has a role to play, and I've got a role to play in this global, con in this global conflict. You know, Rick has grown from this cynical isolationist to now this sort of idealistic freedom fighter. You know, he's putting himself back in the narrative, so to speak. Um, Again, another Hamilton reference. And um, maybe I'll work one into all 100 of these movies. Who knows? Uh, stay tuned. And, and uh, you know, Rick, he tell, tells Isla, tells Isla straight, says, you know, it's like, if that plane leaves and you're not on it, you know, you, you'll, it's like you'll, it's like you'll regret it. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but the rest of your life you will you know or if like that plane leaves and I'm on it and you're not on it then you won't regret it immediately but eventually you will and Isla says like we'll always have that time in Paris the movie ends with Victor and yeah Victor and Elsa fly off in their plane and Rick ends up killing one of the uh, one of the German uh one of the German captains that was about to alert the radio tower that they were trying to escape. So, the very last line of the movie is between uh, Rick and Captain Renault. As Captain Renault tells Rick, it seems like the beginning of a beautiful friendship.
So this movie explores the themes of conflict and I would say true love to an extent. Like true love and also like larger conflicts and being able to see the bigger picture and accepting the fact that maybe due to reasons beyond your control you can't always get what you want out of life. Life is not going to go the way that you want it to. And you're going to have to eventually let go of certain things to serve the greater good, to serve your greater purpose. Rick had to accept the fact that he and Ilsa were never going to work out, that it would never work because he realizes that he has work to do he has work to do in defeating the Nazis, in you know, in defeating the Nazis. He's got a job to do in Morocco, in Casablanca. That's where his story is. That's where his life is. And Isla and Isla and Mr. Laszlo, their fight is out there. Their fight is out there in Europe, in the United States. You know, that that's 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 their fight. That's where their story. That's where their story is. That's where their place is. And whatever you know, true love that Rick and Ilsa might have had is just not going to work in a world that's on fire. So, so I think that the main the main theme, the main like moral of the story is, you must be willing to let go of that which you love at times. Doesn't even have to be like true love, doesn't even have to be like that big. Your ability to maybe compromise and you know, comp compromise and let go of certain things to serve a greater purpose, to serve your higher calling. Now, uh, this movie Warner Bros. had rushed out the December 1942 release of this movie so it could align with the Allied invasion of North Africa just weeks earlier. And, you know, Rick, Rick reflects the, the um, eventual... Um, the eventual uh, joining joining the fight of the United States. You know, Rick goes from a cynical isolationist, cynical, you know, you know, a, a, a cynical, pretty much businessman who just doesn't want to get involved in the war or in politics or nothing. Just wants to live a quiet life, just wants to run away from the fight, wants to stay out of the fight as long as possible. To then being forced back into it, to then realizing that I have to join this fight. I have no choice. It is my duty. Yeah. And that reflects the United States. You started out as isolationists, you know, especially after World War One. You wanted to kinda it's like we don't want to go charging into another one of Europe's wars. It's like, you know, this second world war, like we will remain neutral. We will not get directly involved. But eventually you know, after Pearl Harbor, 
we eventually got involved. We eventually realized that we have a part to play. We have a role to play in this conflict. And we saw our higher purpose beyond just our own you know, domestic, national you know, interests. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's the main, that's the main theme. And I'd argue it's a very timeless theme, and that's why this movie is on this list. The very timeless theme of knowing the law of seeing the bigger picture and being able to let some things go, make sacrifices for the greater good, to serve your higher calling, whatever it may be. So that is the main uh, that's the main theme of uh, Casablanca. Creeping up from the heathens Got will, got fight, got pride, got reason If they wanna go eat, then you know I'm gonna feed them If you're coming for me, hope you're ready for a demon I got eyes in the back of my head, I'm seeing Take me for granted and you know I'm leaving I'ma take what's mine with the webs I'm weaving I could take this crap from seeing to believing Got a taste for blood and my tongue keeps bleeding So now for Casablanca Plus all of this uh, information is provided to us by IMDb. Awards. Casablanca won the Oscar for Best Picture in 1944. Uh, Hubert, Hubert Humphrey Bogart was nominated for Best Actor in a Leading Role at the 1944 Oscars. Uh, Claude Rains was nominated for Best Actor in a Supporting Role. Michael Curtis won Best Director. It won the Oscar for uh, Best Director in 1944. Uh, Julius J. Epstein, Philip G. Epstein, and Howard Koch won uh, the Oscar for Best Writing of a Screenplay in 1944. Uh, author Edison was nominated for the Oscar for Best Cinematography in Black and White. Uh, Owen Marks was nominated for the 1944 Oscar for Best Film Editing. And Max Steiner was nominated for the Oscar for Best Music Scoring, Best Music and Scoring of a Dramatic or Comedy Picture. On to the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films, USA. In 2009, uh, Casablanca was nominated for the Saturn Award for Best DVD Classic Film Release for the Ultimate Collector's Edition of Casablanca, released back in 2009. So let's see, that must have been the 67th, 67th anniversary, I guess, 2009, yeah, 67 years. Las Vegas Film Critics Society Awards. In 2008, Casablanca won the Sierra Award for Best DVD Packaging Design and Content for the 85th Anniversary Edition, Warner Home Entertainment. 85th Anniversary. 
85th. That might be wrong. I think they I think they, they might have meant to say sixty might have meant to say sixty-fifth anniversary. I think that's a typo. The movie's only eighty-one years old. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's probably sixty-fifth and anniversary. National Board Review, USA, Casablanca won the NBR Award for Top 10 Films, and uh, 1943, uh, Michael Curtis won the NBR Award for Best Director. He shared this award with uh, This Is the Army. National Film Preservation Board, USA, Casablanca won the National Film Registry in 1989. New York Film Critics Circle Awards. Uh, Hubert Humphrey was nominated for the NYFCC Award for Best Actor. He shared this award with Across the Pacific. Michael Curtis was nominated for the NYFCC Award for Best Director, shared with Yankee Doodle Dandy. The Photoplay Awards. Casablanca was nominated for the Gold Medal, for the 1978 nominee for the Gold Medal for the Hall of Fame. Uh, Hall of Fame movie at the Photoplay Awards. Uh, Paul Henry, Ingrid Bergman, Humphrey Bogart, and Claude Rains won the Photoplay Award for Best Performance of the Month in February, back in 1943. Golden Trailer Awards. Uh, this was actually uh, recently, just, just this year. Um, Casablanca won Best Digital won the Golden Trailer Award for Best Digital Drama, 80th Anniversary 4K Trailer. Okay, yep, 80, 80 years. DVD Exclusive Awards, 2003. Uh, Kristen Crichton and Beth Welts were nominated for the DVD-X Award for Best Overall DVD Classic Movie, including all extra features for the 60th Anniversary Special Edition back in 2003. Thoth does Online Film and Television Association. Uh, Max Steiner won the 2022 OFTA Film Hall of Fame for his score, or was inducted into the OFTA Hall of Fame for his uh, score of Casablanca. And Ingrid, Ingrid Bergman won the Ofta Film Ofta Film Hall of Fame for the character of uh, for the character of Isla Isla Lund in in Casablanca. Uh, Humphrey Bogart won the 2022 Ofta Film Hall of Fame for character as Rick Blaine. And then 2021, the song As Time Goes By won the 2021 off the Film Hall of Fame for, for a song. Uh, 1997, Casablanca won the Ofta Film Hall of Fame for motion picture. On to some trivia. Many of the actors who played the Nazis were in fact German Jews who had escaped from Nazi Germany. Wow, wow, okay. So it's a way of, uh, I guess, sort of... I guess sort of a way of like depowering the Nazis in a way, kind of. Sort of like how like Mel Brooks, Mel, Mel Brooks, who 
you know, is, is also Jewish. He's said how in a lot of his works he's portrayed Hitler in a comedic way. He's portrayed Nazis in like a comedic way, and that's a way of not that's a way of taking power away from the Nazis, sort of thing. So like many of the actors who played Nazis in Casablanca were actually German Jews who had escaped from Nazi Germany. So it's a way of kind of turning the uh I forget the phrase. Um, <laughs> way of kind of switching the narrative, I guess. At around an hour and 12 minutes, during the scene in which La Marseille, 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 La Marseille, La Marseille, I think I pronounced that. Again. French-speaking listeners, please feel free to correct my pronunciations. Is sung over the German song Die Wacht am Rhein, the watch on the Rhine. Don't know if I pronounced that correctly. Many of the extras had real tears in their eyes as a large number were actual refugees from Nazi persecution in Germany and elsewhere in Europe and were overcome by the emotions the scene brought out. The scene was copied from Jean Rior's The Grand Illusion in 1937, in which French soldiers in a German POW camp sing the song as a similar gesture of defiance. In that film, the song was led by a prisoner who was in drag for a show the prisoners were putting on. The song was written in 1792 by Claude Joseph Rouget de Lys in Strasbourg after the declaration of war by France against Austria and was originally titled Chant de Gréport l'Armée du Rhin, the war song for the Rhine army. Wow, okay, so it's a little, again, you know, it's kind of, at, at times this movie is a bit time period specific. I get that the movie did come out in 1942, but with everything that was going on at that time in the world and then everything going on in the world, like this movie, so production was probably around 1941 maybe, so it takes place in 1941. So yeah, it makes sense that a lot of the extras would be overcome with the emotion and then it just worked for the context of the scene and then everything going on in the world at that time. It's one of those times where I guess the, bound, the, the, the lines between reality and fiction are kind of blurred and it works. Rick's Cafe was one of the few original sets built for the film. The rest were all recycled from other Warner Bros. productions due to wartime restrictions on building supplies. World War II was a very, very different time. There were a lot of restrictions. And it was, there was a rationing of food, and there was, you know, even though we hadn't like officially joined the war effort yet, well, I think especially after we joined the war effort, like there was a lot of like restrictions on the American economy. Plus, plus at that time we were going through our Great Depression, followed by the New Deal. Um, you know. But yeah, it makes sense that, you know, Rick's Cafe the only, was one of the few original sets built. Because filmmaking was expensive back then. Again, we take, we take for granted there's all this, you know, CGI and visual effects. It's like there was none of that 80 years ago. Uh, so, 
yeah, I mean, it, it was expensive. So it makes makes sense. You know, they were all recycled from other Warner Bros. Prod productions. I'm sure this is not the only movie on this list that's had recycled set pieces. No. Reduce, reuse, recycle, folks. Because the film was made during World War II, the production was not allowed to film at an airport after dark for security reasons. Instead, it used a soundstage with a small cardboard cutout airplane and forced perspective. To give the illusion that the plane was full-size, they used little people to portray the crew preparing the plane for takeoff. Years later, the same technique was used in Alien, 1979, in the scene where the crew discovers the dead space jockey with director Ridley Scott's son and some of his friends in scaled-down spacesuits. <laughs> Again, going back to our previous bit of trivia, it's like ingenuity. It was that inconvenience that forced, you know, that forced ingenuity, that forced that intellect of filmmaking and whether if it was the economic restrictions or filming restrictions due to, due to the film being literally being made during a world war. So, so yeah, you know, that just goes to show the, the lengths, the, that's, that's dedication, that's determination, that is dedication to a film saying we're going to have this movie, it's going to get made one way or another, we are committed, you know, we're not just going to not have a plane takeoff scene or completely abandon, you know, or completely rewrite the script because of shooting regulations. So salute to, you know, the directors and the producers who, you know, worked on Casablanca, you know, although I'm sure most of you are no longer with us, but, you know, in spirit, you know, hence why 80 years later this movie is being reviewed. <laughs> It is never revealed why Rick cannot return to America. Julius J. Epstein later said that my brother, uh, Philip G. Epstein, and I tried very hard to come up with a reason why Rick couldn't return to America, but nothing seemed right. We finally decided not to give a reason at all. That is true. They never truly gave a reason, gave a definitive reason why Rick couldn't return to the States. Uh, so that so they so they kind of just left that as a as a mystery, and and yeah, you know I mean certain you know cer certain things you know maybe you have like a bit of a you know writer's block. It's like we couldn't determine we couldn't come up with like a legitimate reason for why like one specific reason why Rick can't return to the states. So we'll just kind of leave it up to the viewer's imagination. And that's exactly what they did. And it worked. On to some goofs. Continuity. When Rick turns around on the quay, the, the, the quay, quay, uh, to get on the train after, after Rain was seen drenching his fedora and coat, both his and Sam's hat and coat are then completely dry <laughs> at around 47 minutes. I, I feel like I did notice that. Yep, they like, down like getting drenched but once they get once they get on the train they're completely dry yep yeah movie magic <laughs> i feel like that's in a lot of movies i feel like that's like a common thing in movies it's like you just downpour downpouring and you just get drenched but then in the next shot boom we're dry at around 16 minutes 
While chatting to Captain Renault outside the Cafe American, uh, Rick lights a cigarette, then in the next shot, lights another. Huh. <laughs> I might have picked up on that, yeah. At around 11 minutes, right before showing Rick the letters of transit, Ugarte begins lighting a new cigarette with his previous cigarette, but gives up doing so and puts the unlit cigarette on the ashtray in front of him, where it rests partially on the table. Again, eagle-eyed viewers, yeah, eagle-eyed viewers, gotta, gotta love them. Moments later, there are two cigarettes in the ashtray, none of which are resting on the table. Moments later, as Ugarte leaves the table, the cigarettes have disappeared from the ashtray. Off into oblivion. Off into movie magic land. <laughs> Early on in this movie, Sam has his piano facing toward the band. A few moments later, the piano faces away from the band. I kind of picked up on that. Yeah, kind of, kind of picked up on that. Yeah, the piano's not facing the band. Yeah. At around an hour and 40 minutes at the airport, the Epaulets, the Epaulets on Major Strasser's coat disappear and reappear between shots. Hmm. Nice, nice. Nice bit of a gap, gap gaps in continuity. Onto some factual errors. There was never any such thing as a letter of transit. Wow. Never. <laughs> so apparently that, that, that wasn't a thing in, in real life, and that was just something created for the movie. At around 43 minutes, during the flashback scene in Paris, loudspeaker trucks are shown with the Gestapo telling the Parisians not to act when the Germans arrive tomorrow. In fact, Paris issued no warnings about the German advance at all. The German blitzkrieg overwhelmed the French so completely that all communications were either stimmied or went astray. Makes sense. Makes sense. They were caught by surprise. At the start of the final airport scene, the weather report that is telephoned to the radio tower, this visibility is quoted as being one and one half mile. Light fog, but if the visibility is one and a half miles, then it is called haze rather than fog, and the weather report is missing some very important items such as wind direction, wind speed, and air pressure. <laughs> Shout out to my meteorologist listening, and to the meteorologist who gave us this bit of uh, trivia, this uh, storm chaser air traffic control person who gave us this bit of trivia. You know who you are. Um, Shout out to you, wherever you're listening from. At around 51 minutes, Captain Renault boasts that I was with them, the Americans, when they blundered into Berlin in 1918. The Great Wars, the World War I armistice, that which ceased hostilities was effective November 1918, but it did not end the war. It did, however, reestablish the borders back to those at the moment just before the outbreak of war. In other words, the armistice caused the Germans to retreat from France, but never ceded any part of Germany to be occupied by foreign troops. Sometime later, almost eight months, the peace was concluded among all but
but the Americans. The U.S. Congress rejected the Treaty of Versailles, and actually the USA didn't conclude a separate peace, separate peace with Germany, the Central Powers, until the start of 1923, over four years later. While the U.S. may have maintained a handful of troops on the continent after the armistice, there is no record of them singularly or in concert with their allies ever marching through the streets of Berlin until 1945, that is. So, so yeah, apparently, like, the war had kind of already ended. Everybody was kind of cool. But then, you know, the USA, we said we need to maybe stay another eight months and just... Uh, we reject the Treaty of Versailles. We need our own treaty because, you know, America, we got to have our own stuff. You know. Shout out, to any, shout out to any veterans that are uh, listening. You know, thank you for your service. At around three minutes, there is a French tricolor with crescent and star in the middle waving over the police office, offices at the beginning of the film. Such flag was never used in Morocco. During the time of the French protectorate of the, the French protectorate, the flag of Morocco was the same as today, red with a green pentagram in the middle. The civil ensign used between 1923 and 1956 added a small French tricolor in the canton, but never a crescent and star. All right, so that was a factual error on the part of the Epsteins, the directors, of course. Incorrectly regarded as goofs. At around 37 minutes, when Rick is getting drunk, he asks Sam, it's December 1941 in Casablanca. What time is it in New York? After Sam replies, my watch stopped, he goes on to say, I'll bet you they're asleep in New York. I'll bet you they're asleep all over America. However, Rick is not referring to the actual time, noted by giving a month and, and year rather than a time, and is actually making reference to in pre-Pearl Harbor America, most Americans are asleep when it comes to the war and fighting the Axis powers. This is an intentional attempt at a poetic reference, not a statement of fact. Again, that's real-world context. That's the context in which the movie exists in pre-Pearl Harbor America. So yes, most Americans are asleep. They are not involved in, not at all involved in either side of the war, not involved in fighting the Axis, not involved in, you know, joining the Allies, and, you know, we're just sort of asleep, sort of just doing our own thing at this point. So, yes, that was an intentional choice on behalf of uh, the studio, on behalf of the directors, so... It was nice. It was, it was, it was a nice, uh, nice sort of nod to the, the climate of the time. At around 51 minutes, Renault says, We mustn't underestimate American blundering. I was with them when they blundered into Berlin in 1918. This isn't historically correct, but Louis was being sarcastic. So, yeah. Makes sense, you know. Louis was being, you know, sorry, sarcastic, you know, a bit of sarcasm. At the very beginning, as we explained in our previous bit of trivia, at the very beginning, a turning globe reveals across the Soviet Union the words Union of Socialist Soviet Republics. Although it was not used as frequently as Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, it is an accepted translation of the name and occasionally appeared on maps of that era. 
right? They did the USSR. Uh, I thought it was like Union of Soviet Socialist Republics or the Soviet Union, you know, Socialist Soviet Republics. But yeah, it makes sense. You know, certain certain tra translations, certain like direct translations, and you know, I realize other languages it's like they might put their words a bit well. For us English speakers in America, it might seem a bit backwards, you know. Like I know in um, Spanish, it's like if you were to say the the red shirt, you would say the direct translation would be the shirt red or la camiseta rojo, the shirt red. When really it's the red shirt, but they will like kind of switch their words around a bit. So common mistranslation, if you will. At around 11 minutes, when Signor Ugarte is explaining to Rick about the letters of transit, he says they are signed by General Weygand, not the free French leader, General Charles de, Charles de Gaulle, as some people think. At the time the movie is set, 1942, General Maxime Weygand was the Vichy delegate general of their North, North African colonies. All right, so yeah, nice, nice bit of uh, historical accuracy. You know that it was not uh, Charles de Gaulle. It was not. It was not contrary to popular belief. It was not Charles de Gaulle. He was not. He was not the delegate general of the North African colonies at that time. You know, nineteen forty-two. So, at around twenty-eight minutes, Major Strasser addresses Ilsa as Mademoiselle because as explained by Ilsa when she attempts to get her letters of transit from Rick, her marriage to Victor was kept secret even from her friends. Right, so, 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 so it was a secret marriage uh, that she had with Victor that she didn't really tell anyone about. So the assumption that she was a mademoiselle and not a madame, not a madame, it's my understanding that mademoiselle is for any unmarried a uh, woman, you refer to her as Mademoiselle, and then Madame is for a married woman, for Mrs. It's like the, the, the English translation for Madame is, would be Mrs., and then the English translation for Mademoiselle is Miss, you know, Miss, Ms., you know, unmarried, you know, Mademoiselle, so MS instead of MRS. Revealing mistakes. At around an hour and 27 minutes after police break up underground groups meeting and Laszlo escapes to Rick's cafe, Laszlo is trying to bandage his arm with a dish towel. The towel falls off several times, yet there is no blood on it. <laughs> I kind of I picked up on this one. Yes. You know, towel falls off several times. There's no blood on it. It's you know definitely a mistake on the part of the props department or the makeup department, it was the 40s. Miscellaneous. At around, an, at around 13 minutes, when Signor Ferrari first enters Rick's cafe and seats himself the back stucco wall to the top and left of Ferrari's head vibrates a few times, exposing it as a very flimsy set wall. It occurs once more when it cuts back to the same shot after a cutaway of Rick. <laughs> wow. Uh, 
So back stu uh, stu stucco, stucco wall to the top and left of Ferrari's head. It vibrates a few times. Okay, so yeah, very flimsy set wall. They had to work with what they had. Uh, two actors have their names misspelled in the credits. S.Z. Sakal is spelled S.K. Sakal, and Madeleine LeBeau's name is miscredited as Madeleine LeBeau, but with a capital B instead of a lowercase b. Honest mistake, you know, honest mistake. I think I actually picked up on that on on IMDb that uh one that that the the character the S S C Zalek, you know, spelled S K instead of S C yeah. Z or Z if you're outside the United States. Audio visual unsynchronized. At around an hour and twelve minutes when the trumpet and trombone players raise their instruments to play La Mars. La Marseille, the music begins a split second before they start playing. Kind of picked up on that. Yeah, kind of. Kind of pick, picked up on that. Yeah, Un unsynchronized audio. There are multiple instances throughout the film where the action of Sam's hands on the piano bears no resemblance to the <laughs> piano part heard, especially notable in the first time Sam sings as time goes by for Ilsa. A rapid tremble run is executed that would have necessitated the movement of his right forearm. None is seen. This is very true. Um, I don't play the piano. I used to play the alto saxophone. Um, music scholars, you know, uh, shout out to the you know piano player, the music scholar that uh, pointed out this bit of information to us. Uh, shout out to you wherever you're listening from, and piano players and musicians, feel free to, uh, feel free to uh, confirm this, you know, feel free to confirm or deny this bit of information. Um, my friend who's a singer from Troop 5 in Middlebury, Connecticut, uh, you know who you are, I'm talking to you, please uh, confirm this for us. <laughs> At around an hour and one minute, while accompanying Sam of If I Could Be With You, the guitarist pats, his, pats her instrument in rhythm, yet the sound heard can only be made when the guitar is actually strummed. True, true. <laughs> uh, the guitarist yeah, pat, pats her instrument in rhythm, and yet the sound heard can only be made when the guitar is actually strummed. Well, yeah, I mean, makes sense. You know, you're, not, you're not actually playing the instrument, so yeah. <laughs> At around 15 minutes when Yvonne is kicked out of Rick's in the first scene there, the comments she shouts as she walks outside don't match her lip movement at all. <laughs> I may have noticed, I feel like I probably noticed that and just don't remember, don't particularly remember that seen as well, but um, but yeah, I'm pretty sure I picked up on that. Yeah. Throughout the movie, Sam is seen playing an upright piano, but the sound is clearly that of a grand piano. Again, to the musicians listening, I invite your uh, feedback in the comments. Cool equipment visible. At around five minutes, when German plane approaches the airport, the camera pans across a large group of refugees 
with their passports lined up outside the police headquarters. The camera moves close to the crowd, revealing the individual persons. A shadow moves across the wall behind them, which is most likely the camera came. <laughs> camera crane, camera crane, English. Um, wow, wow, I mean, that, that, uh, so yeah, that made its way into the movie, so keep your eye out for that. Errors in geography. Throughout the film, liquor bottles are seen with USA tax revenue stickers across the tops of the bottles. Well, yeah. That is a severe error in uh, geography that, you know, I'm sure you in Casablanca and you're not going to have all these USA uh, liquor bottles. You know. At around 47 minutes, the railroad car Rick boards in Paris is an American railroad passenger car. French railroad cars of the time would likely board from multiple doors into individual compartments. The two cars shown reveal that American heritage in handrails, side moldings, and other minor details. Given the unavailability of French cars at the time of filming, the error is understandable. Yeah, yeah, it's understandable. Again, the world keeps on spinning. You know, there are things going on that are beyond our control, folks. At around an hour and 35 minutes, when Renault calls Strasser to tell of the upcoming events at the airport, Major Strasser is in the office of the German Commission of Armistice. According to the sign on the door, the name should have been in German or perhaps French, but not in English. Yeah, it makes sense. You know, German Commission of Armistice, yeah, it should be in German. You know, it's a German occupation of France, not, shouldn't have been in English. At around one minute, on the map shown during the titles at the beginning, the area where Poland is shown, actually Poland didn't exist in 1942, and it was politically considered part of Germany, or more properly called occupied Poland, is in reality parts of Belarus and the Ukraine, which were dissolved into the USSR at the time. So that's a significant geographical error on the part of the uh, production of the film. In the initial scene with a map of Africa, Rabat is incorrectly placed at the location of the town of Kinitra, and thus is too far north. Rabat is actually about 20 miles further to the southwest at the place where the map indicates a river flowing into the Atlantic. Note that Rabat is correctly placed on the map on the wall in the prefect's office. So, so that was a geographical error that they actually corrected. So, so big ups to Prof's department on that one. You know, make a mistake and then you correct your mistake. Yeah. On to some plot holes. From the fall of metropolitan France in June 1940 until Operation Torch, the Allied invasion of North Africa in 1942, was less than two years. During that time, French colonies in Africa were ruled by the Vinci government until each one was either occupied by free French forces or were conquered by the Allies. Hmm. I guess that's a major plot hole in the movie. Yeah. Fall of Metropolitan France, 1940, and then open Operation Torch, you know, the Allied invasion of North Africa, 1942. 
So that whole thing was less than two years. Yeah, major plot hole. The Nazis never played more than minor role in French North Africa, except for Tunisia, and even that was relatively limited during late 1942 to mid-1943. At any time during World War II, it certainly did not run Morocco, much less Casablanca. Yeah, yeah. Um, historians, um, feel free to interject. Again, historians listening, uh, feel free to interject comment section it is there so have at it you know have at it comments whether if it's comment on this particular uh, episode whether you're listening on like Spotify or Apple Podcasts wherever you're listening from uh, or on Instagram you know the post that I make for this episode when it comes out feel free to uh, have at it in the uh, comments section if Laszlo is such a notorious and hunted character by the Nazis, he would not be so foolish as to openly enter a social and political hub like Rick's Cafe, even in technically free Vichy, Morocco. Very true. Very, very true. You know, with today's modern-day technology, the powers that be... Well, if... I guess... I guess that is a bit time period specific because I feel like 80 years later, like if he were kind of on the run, it's like with all the technology we have today that we didn't have almost a century ago, they would have found him. Like he would have made his way into Morocco. They would have been able to find him in that cafe in like less than 24 hours. At around an hour and 23 minutes, Laszlo wanted to keep his marriage to Ilsa a secret because she would be in danger if the Germans learned she was his wife and she would know information they would want. But she was openly his traveling companion, which should alert the Germans that she probably knew secret information about Laszlo's work, so her life should be in danger anyway. Yeah, yeah, uh, that makes sense. I, I, I had never, I had actually never thought about that. Um, yeah, so good look, good looks to uh, again the IMDb contributor who gave us that bit of information. There's a boom mic visible. At around an hour and thirty minutes, Rick lets Louie into the cafe to catch Laszlo, and as they walk past the first table, the shadow of the microphone moves across the tabletop. Eagle-eyed viewers notice the uh, shadow of the microphone moving across the uh, tabletop. I don't think I noticed that. Character error. At around 44 minutes, when Rick and Ilsa are listening to the sound of German guns out the window in Paris, Rick comments that they are from the new German 77s. Actually, the German army used a 77mm field gun in World War I, not World War II. Other sources claim that the script change was made from the original 88s on the basis of a War Department request to avoid tipping off the Germans as to America's awareness of the new weapon. Hmm. Yep, you know, that... I believe it. I believe it. You know, again, secrecy. There's a whole war going on. You know, by, by, by the time this movie came out in 1942, we were... You know, the United States, we were well apart 
we were definitely a part part of this war. That was like the first. I guess that was like the first full year of uh, of that conflict that we were a part of. So yeah, probably got to be careful about what you do and don't say in a movie, although it's fictional. But you know, at around an hour and thirty-five minutes in the final airport scene, the French guard telephones the radio tower and reports visibilities one and a half miles. France invented the metric system in the 1790s and are very chauvinistic about its use. No French official would report distance in miles, only kilometers. You know, um, I think when I was on the Comic Boys podcast, I talked a bit about the metric system and how for engineers were required to know the international system and the metric system because that's what the majority of people on the face of the earth no. Uh, I mean, here in Micronesia, the mile markers are in miles, not kilometers. And I think for temperature, they use Fahrenheit instead of Celsius. Um, that's only because they're a former U.S. Uh, territory. But I would say, like, for engineering and for any future engineers, anybody who's thinking about going into STEM, you're going to need to know the international system. Uh, you know, kilometers and not miles. A lot of it just makes sense. A lot of it's easier. So, yeah. But again, having the imperial units, the imperial systems, probably, it's probably the fact that it's an American movie, and who knows? The U.S. The U.S. may never switch over to the metric system. We might just always be on the imperial system. Yeah. At around nine minutes in the opening, Rick is at the back of his cafe playing chess with himself. During a close-up of his hand, he is. Wearing a wedding ring. Rick is a bachelor. Well, no. Character error. Yeah, that was a character error on the part of uh, Humphrey Bogart. At around an hour and 35 minutes, Rick tells Louis to fill in the letters of transit in the names of Mr. and Mrs. Victor Laszlo. However, the marriage was kept a strict secret, so Ilsa would not have changed her name to Laszlo. She still would have been legally Ilsa Lund. Yep, yep, that's 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 actually it's absolutely true. You know, the marriage was kept like on the DL. You know, it was like on the DL on the DL. Um you know, like like absolutely nobody knew. So so yes, you know, for obvious reasons, Ilsa would have kept her maiden name. You know, so legally her name still would have been Ilsa Lund. I think even on IMDb, she's credited as, the character is credited as Ilsa Lund, not as Ilsa Laszlo. So, yeah. Lastly, at around 55 minutes, Ferrari's blue parrot is a different species. It is hard to tell in black and white, but based on the face patch, size, and gray scale of the colors, the parrot is a scarlet macaw. Red and yellow with blue wing tips, or Ara Macau, and not a blue macaw, hyacinth or blue and gold. So, yeah, eagle-eyed viewers, I think it's even harder to keep track of that in uh, <laughs> in uh, black and white. But salute to the uh, IMDb contributors. That's it for trivia. On to some quotes, Rick. Of all the gin joints and all the towns and all the world, she walks into mine. 
one of the most well-known quotes from this movie. Captain Renault, what in heaven's name brought you to Casablanca? Rick, my health. I came to Casablanca for the waters. Captain Renault, the waters? What waters? Uh, what, what waters? We're in the desert. Rick, I was misinformed. Last lines. Last line of the movie. Rick, Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. <laughs> Alternate versions. As late as 1974, the references to an extramarital affair were banned in Ireland. The Irish cut got rid of two important sequences. First, after Ilsa tells Rick that she had left him after finding out that Victor was still alive, the embraces and dialogue that followed were cut. Second, the emotional dialogue at the end of the film where Ilsa's line, you're saying that the only, you're saying that only to make me go, to Rick's line, what I've got to do, you haven't any part of. This led to Irish audiences being bemused by the relationship between Rick and Ilsa, and often interpreting Rick's final speech beginning, I'm not going to, beginning, I'm not good at being noble, as a reflection of the debilitating effects of war. Hmm. Wow. Shout out to my Irish uh, listeners in Ireland and around the world. In the Italian version, uh, the sequence where the Italian officer Tonelli meets Strasser is cut. Uh, ciao to my uh, Italiano uh, listeners. Uh, uh, ciao to my uh, Italian listeners. Uh, I promise I will review The Godfather at some point. <laughs> Um, at the time of release, the film was banned in Germany because the story was considered to be anti-Nazi propaganda by the wartime censors. After the end of World War II, the picture was finally released in Germany, but with around 20 minutes of footage cut, all scenes with Major Strasser and all references to Nazism. Other scenes were dubbed so that they had a totally different meaning. Victor Laszlo became Victor Larson, an atomic physicist. In the 70s, the film was redubbed by the ZDF, this time in its uncut form. Um, Guten Morgen to my listeners in uh, Deutschland. Yes? Ja? <laughs> yes, uh, you know, this is why I love, you know, movies like Casablanca that, you know, like... Movies that are in like English, French, and German, I get a, I get the ability to practice, you know. <laughs> a colorized version was shown on Australian TV, crikey, and was released on VHS in the United States. A colorized, oh, there's a colorized version that was shown on Australian TV. Uh, shout out to my listeners down under, especially uh, Lee from Lights Camera Shrimp on the Barbie, crikey. Um, <laughs> I'm having way too much fun, guys. Uh, user review. Of all the classics and all the films and all the world, this is the best. This is a film that must belong in every video collection in the U.S., if not in the world. The stories about its making a leg legendary form, the constant rewrites to the apocrypha of casting stories, 
What is amazing to me and the reason I believe it holds audiences almost spellbound in successive viewings is the connection with the horrors of World War II was almost every single cast member. Sidney Greenstreet had lost a son in combat and a number of the cast members fled Europe to escape the ravages of a Hitler regime. Even the evil Nazi character Major Strasser, played with relish by Conrad Veidt, had left Nazi Germany to escape almost sure internment and possible death in a concentration camp. Here was a man who was a legend in German film history as the murdering somnambulates, a possible warning about the Nazi soldiers to come. And because of the vicious anti-Semitism and racism of the Germany of the 30s and 40s, we in America and in Hollywood were given a great film. Everyone in this film is fabulous, but it is the chemistry of Rick Bogart and Ilsa Bergman that truly holds truly holds the film probably that truly holds the film together. When I saw this film almost frame by frame in the limited book series of classic films that were produced in the late 1960s, I was stunned by the subtly the subtlety of facial expressions that convey so much of Rick Blaine's character by a marvelous actor, Humphrey Bogart. There is a reason why he was named the actor of the century. While every person in the film becomes a real flesh and blood presence, the story of Rick and Ilsa is the center of this cinema feast. I must confess that I have seen this picture so many times that I can recite every single line in the movie to the consternation of my wife. <laughs> Who can't watch it with me anymore? The line that sticks out to me from that that sticks out the most for me, and which against cheers from New Yorkers whenever whenever it plays in the in it in the theater, it is when Bogart says to the Nazis seated at his table, "There are parts of New York I wouldn't advise you to invade." And what makes this line so memorable is that Humphrey Bogart did indeed star in another motion picture from Warner Brothers where that very thing formed the basis for the script. The movie was all through the night. I love this movie too, and I'm not even a New Yorker. There have been many attempts to revisit Casablanca, but only the original makes you really feel what it was like to live through the good war in a faraway place like Casablanca in French Morocco. Even though such trickery as midget airport workers fog machines and cardboard cutout airplanes were utilized, this film convinces through its beautiful story with many layers and characters that are so well realized. If you've never seen this movie before, shame on you and see it immediately. If you've only seen it once, I believe you will come back to it more than once. This is just about the most perfect film ever made. And it is a miracle that this is so considering, and this is so considering that there were so many hands in the pie. Excuse me for my mixing my metaphors. It's late and I get emotional just thinking about this classic film masterpiece. Play it again and again and again and again, Sam. Uh, thank you, Sam, for giving us that user review on, on IMDb. Big, big shout out to Sam. Yeah, this movie is definitely one of the greats. I can see why the AFI put this on their list of top 10, of top 100 
films of all time, why this is in the top 10. Like, I, I can see not only why this is on the list, but why it's in the top 10. Um, would I maybe put it higher on the list? Like, I realize it's number three, but I put it as number one. I'm going to say this now, and my answer may change by the end of this uh, series. Who knows? But I would say maybe keep it as number three. Yep, yep. I, I would say maybe keep, keep it as number three, although I probably would have put The Godfather above Citizen Kane. I probably would have put it as like maybe Godfather, Citizen Kane, and then Casablanca. That would have been my rating. Um, you know, but American Film Institute, they put Citizen Kane as number one, and then The Godfather as number two, and Casablanca as number three. It will always be a top, it is now, I guess, a, a top ten movie for me, um, for, for, for sure. You know, it's a movie that I had heard so much about, and now that I've actually, now that I've actually watched it, and I've, you know, gotten the real world context behind the film, and... It's just, you know, it's just an all-around great film, you know. 10 out of 10. For me, 10 out of 10, you yeah, know, for sure. IMDb, I, the IMDb rating for this movie is 8.5 out of 10 stars. It has a letterbox score of 4.3 out of 5 stars. Um, I agree with these ratings. Um, maybe I would have rated it a bit, a bit higher. For IMDb, maybe I would have given it like a 9.7 out of 10. And Letterboxd, um, feel free to follow me on Letterboxd, guys. I'm on Letterboxd, you know, Cops Corner Podcast. We're on Letterboxd. You know, Letterboxd score 4.3 out of 5. I might not have a problem with that. Yep, I might, might, might not have a, have a problem with that, with that rating. Uh, official details, the movie was released... Its reported release date is January 23rd, 1943. Um, country of origin, United States. This is an American movie. Uh, official site, apparently, there's a Facebook for this movie. Um, the movie is in the languages English, French, German, Italian, and Russian. All five of those languages make their way into this film. The movie is also known as Everybody Comes to Rick's. The movie is based on an unproduced play called Everyone Comes to Rick's. Everyone Comes to Rick's, that's the unproduced play that Casablanca is based on. So, The filming locations include Waterman Drive Van, in uh, Van, Nu, Van Nuys, N-U-Y-S, uh, Los Angeles, California. It's an airport, airport runway, Water, Waterman Drive. Uh, the production company was Warner Bros. The movie had about an estimated budget of $950,000. Its uh, gross domestic box office haul was $4.2 million in the U.S. and Canada. Its opening weekend, it made $181,494. Its opening weekend, um, for some reason, it says April 12, 1992, even though the movie came out 1942 or 43. So. Its gross worldwide uh, box office was 4.6 million. So the majority of the money that it made at the box office was domestically. That's how you know the movie was great. You know, really, 
you know, $4.2 million domestically and then another and then another $400,000 um, internationally. You know, another four another four hundred thousand dollars abroad. So, yeah, four point two million dollars in the gross in U.S. and Canada. Nine hundred fifty thousand dollars. Accountants, economists, feel free to um, put in the comments below. Um, adjust 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 these uh, values for inflation. Uh, plus, you can find all this information on IMDb. So, I'm open to those uh, bits of information to the accountants and you know, finance majors listening. Let's adjust for inflation. Inflation calculator, anyone? Rotten Tomatoes, Rotten Tomatoes gave this movie a score of 99%. Critical score, 99%. Audience score, 95%. I'm siding with the critics on this one, 99%. You know, there's very few movies on Rotten Tomatoes that have 100%, so for Rotten Tomatoes, for them to give it a 99%, can't complain. Critics' consensus. An undisputed masterpiece and perhaps Hollywood's quintessential statement of love and romance. Casablanca has only improved with age, boasting career-defining performance, performances from Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman. For sure. For sure. Where to watch? Watch Casablanca with a subscription on Max, rent it on Vudu, Apple TV, Amazon Prime, or buy on Voodoo, Apple TV, or Amazon Prime Video. I watched this movie with my subscription to Max. I, <laughs> this is probably the first movie I reviewed in a while that I did not watch on DVD. I just watched it with my subscription to uh, Max. So. so there you have it. That's, that's all for this review of Casablanca, one of the greatest films of all time. Uh, stay tuned for our next episode, which will be Raging Bull. Raging Bull, which came out in 1980. That is our next movie on the list. If you like what you heard today, then don't forget to give us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, preferably five stars. If you've got a movie or movie series that you want us to review next here on Cobb's Corner, then all you got to do is Hit us up on Instagram or Instagram or TikTok. You can also, well, let's see, Instagram, TikTok, or Threads. Definitely follow Cobb's Corner on Threads. I'm starting to post more on uh, Threads, so be sure to hit us up on any of those social media accounts. If you don't have social media, you can also email us at Podcast at gmail.com. All that information is in the show notes below. If you made it to the end of this episode, I greatly appreciate it. Be sure to turn on those post notifications so that you get notified when I post. And tune in to Talk Time with Morgan Cobbs Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. Chook Standard Time live on YouTube. Available everywhere else the next day. I hope you all enjoyed your stay here at Cobbs Corner, and I'll talk to all of you in the next episode. Peace.